0: I can't resist taking a chance on something, in nature anyway, that looks like a place I haven't been and I wonder what it's like there.
1: I think everybody who talks to Barry Sharpless wants really to know the same thing, which is how can you be the sort of person who is so creative and bring so many new ideas into the world that you're awarded not just one but two nobel prizes if you could get the secret and bottle it Maybe even sell it, (laughs) you'd be very happy. It's a hugely pleasurable trip to talk to Barry. He himself would be the first to say that his conversation veers quite wildly around (laughs) as new topics occur to him. And that's an absolute joy and quite a challenge to the listener to follow along with and to concentrate hard to see where you're going to go next. So do join me for this conversation with Barry Sharpless, which I think does give, at least me, a greater insight into how he comes up with ideas and what an idea actually means to him, and in particular, how dangerous ideas can be.
2: This is Nobel Prize Conversations. Our guest is two-time chemistry laureate, Barry Sharpless. He shared the 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry with Carolyn Bertozzi and Morten Meldahl for the discovery of click chemistry. 21 years earlier, he was also awarded for his work on chirally catalyzed oxidation reactions. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Arezas. Barry Sharpless is the W.M. Keck Professor of Chemistry in the Department of Chemistry at Scripps Research in La Jolla, California. In this conversation, he takes Adam on a journey into his fascinating mind, explaining how impatience has shaped his career and why he loves being terrified on a regular basis. But we start with a frequently asked question.
1: I suppose what everybody wants to know from you is how it's possible to generate so many good ideas. So let me start by just saying, have you got an answer to that question?
0: (laughs) You know, that's probably the question that I've been asked to think about ever since it started happening. So it's a really good question. And in fact, the most important question, if I could answer it. For advice for humanity and humans who want to have possibly more ideas that are really worthwhile. And uh, I guess I realized that it was happening to me. I was in uh, Japan with a lot of experts on asymmetric synthesis and Kagan and uh, Noyori and Eric Jacobson and others at a meeting years ago. And uh, it was before the first Nobel Prize, I think, in asymmetric synthesis. And since I had done a number of different things that were asymmetric and uh, also had other types of reactivity I'd found. I mean, Nori is a strong personality, but he's very thoughtful because he said, well, Barry, we've all been talking, but one question I really think we need to ask you is, how did you have so many ideas? And uh, that was a sort of kickoff for the thing when I realized Ryoji had this question, then, and, yeah. and I didn't have an answer at that time, and I just sort of shook my head. But the more I did think about it, Jan helped me with it, my wife. You know, basically, it comes down to things like if you can't plan ahead, you're in a different boat than the rest of the team because you don't know how you're going to get through the day or what's going to happen to you. And you will tend to notice things in a different way, I think, in the events of the day, in the events of the chemistry you're trying to do in front of you.
1: Let's focus in on that one first because that in itself is – an extraordinary statement that you can't plan at all—that you're living almost by the sort of seat of your pants. <laughs> that it's not how most of us live. Is that really what it feels like that you can't plan ahead, that you're just kind of living in the moment?
0: Well, Jen, I mean, knows the frustrations of it more than anything. I mean, she finally realized that that's why I'm so difficult sometimes.
1: Yeah, I don't know why I can't do
0: it. It's like an aphasia in the mind. <laughs> That's why research proposals were painful as hell, and I always just wanted to go down to the lab and try it instead of more BS on the paper saying why it might work, why it might not work. And I said, "Well, I'll just try it." So I took a week in the lab instead of writing. And by the time it came time to get the thing across the transom to the government for the proposal, I was just desperate, and I sent things. And I started to have things to publish, to talk about before I. I didn't have support for them, but I'd done them, and then I could talk about the things that already worked and just keep going. And that seemed to patch along pretty well, at least with the study section I had in the National Science Foundation. And then came the asymmetric epoxidation, and that got me in with the National Institutes of Health more firmly, and then they kept supporting asymmetric chemistry for me. So those are the only two grants I ever had continuity on. And it wasn't enough money to run my group on. And I ended up going from dowry to dowry by having the success in moving and getting a dowry and then going through it. And finally, I ended up at Scripps with Richard Lerner, who's really a visionary. And he just said, Barry, I like what you're doing. I'm going to support it. And uh, we'll support it with the Skaggs Foundation and with the Annenberg Foundation. We've got money. We can support research, direct research here at Scripps. And and that's what happened. I was able to keep this clip chemistry going.
2: So let's talk a little bit about the many discoveries of Barry Sharpless, What was he first awarded a prize for in 2001, Adam?
1: He was given that prize for a very brilliant piece of organic synthesis. At the time, many people said it was the most exciting development in organic synthesis for decades. And it was a way of doing what chemists call asymmetric synthesis. And in order to understand that, one has to understand the word asymmetric. Many molecules have the property of handedness which chemists refer to as chirality. But if you look at your two hands, you'll see that they're mirror images of each other.
2: I've got them in front of me now, yep.
1: Good. (laughs) Now try superimposing them. Okay. And you'll see that somehow you can't superimpose them. Despite the fact that they have the same things attached to them, your fingers and thumb, they're arranged in a different way in space and you cannot superimpose one over the other.
2: I see that. I can clap them together, but if I try and put them one on top of the other, they don't overlap.
1: Exactly. Now, if your hands were organic molecules with this property of handedness, you'd find the same thing. Mm -hmm. Carbon atoms always have four bonds attached to them. If those four bonds lead to four different groups, so in other words, that carbon atom has four different things arranged around it, then it will have this property of handedness or chirality, in that there are two ways of arranging those things that are non-superimposable. If you like, a left-handed form and a right-handed form. Those two molecules, despite behaving in the same way with respect to their physical properties, their boiling point or their melting point, have different chemical properties. And that's incredibly important because the different handed forms of those molecules behave differently. So when chemists are trying to make a molecule with a chiral carbon, they really probably want to make one form or the other, the left-handed form or the right-handed form. But most chemical reactions don't give you one form or the other. They give you equal amounts of both forms. What you want to be able to do is to synthesise those things asymmetrically. In other words, make one form and not the other.
2: Ah, I see. Okay.
1: And Barry Sharpless's innovation, for which he was awarded the 2001 Nobel Prize was a reaction called the sharpless epoxidation, which allows you to do that in a very selective way and produce just the form you want, and then introduce all sorts of different functionality.
2: So it's pretty unusual to be awarded one Nobel Prize, let alone two. What was Barry's second Nobel Prize awarded for? Yes,
1: uh, it's an incredibly rare thing. Interestingly, he was awarded the prize for click chemistry, And I remember when I spoke to him in uh, 2001, 21 years before that prize, he wasn't so interested in talking about what he was being awarded the prize for then, that epoxidation. He wanted to talk about what he was doing now, which was click chemistry. So he was (laughs) already very much focused on that when the first Nobel Prize came. Click chemistry describes a very small group of reactions which are almost perfect In most organic chemistry, the reactions that chemists use are far from perfect. They're very difficult to make happen. You have to heat the system or put lots of energy into it to make molecules stick together. When they do, they don't do so in very high yield. They also tend to produce lots of byproducts. So they're not the greatest thing for making exactly what you want. In click chemistry, you have reactions which happen under mild conditions with almost total efficiency, 100% yield, and they produce no byproducts. So they're, if you like, the holy grail of chemical reactions. There aren't very many of them, as I say, but those that there are are incredibly valuable. And it was for the development of those, and I suppose partly for dreaming of the possibility of making such reactions, that Barry Sharpless was awarded his second Nobel Prize.
2: So you mentioned when you spoke to Barry back in 2001, Adam, that he was already thinking ahead. What must it be like to always be sort of one step ahead of where everyone else is at?
1: (laughs) I mean, I suppose broadly all scientists are trying to think of what's to come. It's just a bit extreme in Barry's case that he's just constantly focused on a new problem. I suppose sometimes that can be a bit of a disadvantage. In fact, it's interesting to hear him speak about that.
0: frankly, it wasn't easy because the Germans who had come to me, who were really marvelous chemists, they still are, and they always will be, I think, but they came and they want to do asymmetric things. And I kept, oh, no, can we try (laughs) this new click chemistry thing? And basically, it shut down the uh, conduit that was bringing (laughs) the uh, Germans to uh, La They loved it here, of course, because all northern Western Europeans, especially those up north, and probably in England and Scandinavia and Germany, they love Southern California for its contrast with their their home. And uh, so they wanted to come. I must say I felt bad because I, I would just neglect them if they didn't want to work on click chemistry.
1: I'm getting the view of you as a, as an impatient person. Yeah, no. you're right. <laughs> it's, it's nice that that chimes with your own view of yourself. You just want to get things done.
0: And the bad thing is that in everyday life, impatient to usually too impulsive. And the impulsive things really are, I don't know, I, I did have an eye blown out when I was a young professor. And probably if I was less impulsive, that wouldn't have happened. But basically, the impulsive part is what makes me want to get the reaction going in some way that we can get within a day's work or overnight. At least we can get some answers about some crucial things that are hinging on this experiment. Yes or no things as far as being a go ahead for something more interesting than the average.
1: We'll stick with impatience, but I just can't let the comment about the eye go without just exploring that a bit more. That was an NMR tube exploding, wasn't it? Yes. That's a pretty enormous thing to happen to you, to have an eye blown out, or rather you were blinded in one eye by the Yeah, and and
0: that was for a while, but then I got an operation here in California years later that helped me get vision back in that eye. You would have thought that having just one eye would have been really a, a huge disadvantage, but yeah, I couldn't ride motorcycles anymore or stuff like that. For a while, I had to learn to take the information in. Maybe there is something to the left right brain, but it seemed... To work
1: fine. Okay, you mentioned motorcycles and riding fast motorcycles, I suppose, goes along with an impetuous, impatient person.
0: Yeah, I'm not too coordinated. That's the problem. Skiing was a nightmare for me because I didn't have that coordination. I wanted to go fast, but always got banged up because I couldn't. And on a motorcycle, a dirt bike, especially in the woods, in the logging trails of California, around San Francisco. You feel like you're a waddling skier. I mean, just amazing amount of things can be done, sliding and slipping. And it was just so good. It was better than going out and drinking with the boys. It was so relaxing for me to get a little frightened. And uh, this has always been true for me. Getting frightened is really erasing somehow the nervous system, which is making me worry and stuff. It just sort of releases that tension and. And it's addicting to get a little scared, if you can. That's sort of, I think, well-known human self-medication method.
1: I suppose so, but a a lot of people try and get themselves out of situations of being scared. When did it start for you? What's your earliest memory of wanting to be frightened?
0: Well, it was out on the river, in the Manasquan River, which was really quiet in those days. It was almost like a private estuary of fresh water, salt water, and all these creatures. And I could putt around, but I was told by my parents, I think I was nine or eight, and I was told not to go out in the ocean because the ocean was about two and a half miles away downriver. And I ended up not being able to resist going out in the ocean because the fish were more reliable there. And- <laughs> So I felt that was something I was doing that was uh, not allowed, and I felt pretty excited and worried that I would get caught or something would go wrong, and uh, that's sort of an example of it, I think. Mm. I can't resist taking a chance on something, in nature anyway, that looks uh, like a place I haven't been, and I wonder what it's like there.
1: Which I think also sums up your attitude to ideas, And that's the remarkable thing, because when you talk about having ideas in science, in chemistry, I get the impression that the excitement of it, the danger of those ideas, is one of the things that you find so appealing. And that's different, I think, from a lot of us. Most of us don't have ideas that are that dangerous, but you do. Ideas for you are on the edge and thrilling. Is that right?
0: I think so. I mean, the ones that I've been able to stoke myself up to having since I was successful in my first go at research at MIT, I try, I keep asking myself, well, what does this mean? The general phenomenon of seeing something about reactivity and realizing why wasn't it found before and what does it imply about what might be out there that hasn't been seen. That's the part that I do naturally now. I mean, I people will focus on things that are interesting in chemistry and a lot of people are really good at that. But to focus on them from the standpoint of what they imply about things that haven't been tried or haven't been seen yet, I do it every time I hear something interesting or at least a couple of days later, I sit down and I'm like, what does that mean really? <laughs> and then I try to say, well, maybe it means this. <laughs> and this means set of conditions that might, if it worked, jump you a little, another little jump over a stream or a brook that might have held most people back. And you just try it and it didn't work and you come right back. And if somebody tells you, "Well, oh, I've got this great new thing and it's going to do this and that and the other thing. And if you know a lot about your science and how you can do things in your field, then their idea is something you're automatically going to analyze because that's what you're about when you're doing the chemistry the way I'm doing. You're trying to find something that's more useful in the long run. And it's not somebody's idea of what they were told when they started writing their grant. This is important. People have these objectives for science. Uh, you know, The country has needs for energy things and whatever. If people tell you that they're doing something important in that regard, Namely, they're aiming to solve the problem that has no linear solution. It's a big problem. because They're not anchored to the foundation of what makes things possible on the larger scale where everything's integrated. And so even though I'm not a logical person when I'm speaking, I just go over and over, like repetitively in my mind. I keep asking myself, wait a minute, why am I doing this? See, if something works really beyond your wildest imagination, then sometimes that thing that you're seeking or hoping for may not mount to much from a certain point of view. And so it's kind of bad to fool yourself when it comes to things like that if you can avoid it. Mm. I'm afraid of being embarrassed by doing something not exciting.
1: Yes, your threshold is very high indeed. And I've heard you, yes, I've heard you quote this beautiful thing from Einstein that if at first the idea doesn't seem absurd, it's not worth doing.
0: He seemed like such a nice, avuncular man. I guess he was a pretty difficult guy, too. Somebody told a story about him. It "It sounded like talking to me. Once I get started, you can't stop me. This person had talked to Einstein. He was well, he can talk your head off. (laughs) (laughs) I had never thought about that from Einstein. He seemed like a gentle old man when we knew him, from the news anyway.
1: Yeah, It's a different view. It's a nice view. How do your colleagues in chemistry take your approach? Because it must, in a way, be a bit challenging for them. They present you with their latest and greatest idea, and you immediately take it apart and see what you can do with it and whether you can extend it or knock it down. Well,
0: that's true. I grew up in a continuum of rapid change, but it really was more or less trying to enrich the world that people believed in, making very complicated molecules and uh, having more reactions almost endlessly because they might be useful just somewhere. It kind of grew away from that naturally because I realized that man is really paying for its research. I mean, most countries pay dearly and they have other things where people are suffering and they need money, but they give it to groups in scientific establishments for education and they don't have the luxury of that money not being useful. And yet, if you do useful research, academics scream about, that. we want what's called curiosity-driven research, and not sort of, well, we're supposed to make this compound, or we're supposed to solve that pollution problem. And I guess, really, at the end of the day, the chemistry, if it can evolve, I keep up with mankind's ever-increasing needs, we really do need to keep up with the inventions that enable man to do what he continues to want to do. And that's something that people don't want to hear to me, practical is even part of the recipe. That's part of the answer, that it's practical. is conceivable at the beginning, not having to be reduced to practice at the end after you've got a very complicated scenario to solve a problem and you can't afford it. So I guess that's where I get hard on myself. I'm trying to realize that you can't do certain things. In this world, too much energy, like if I was to use osmium. For a lot of reactions. It's a wonderful metal and catalyst, but there's just not enough osmium on the Earth to deal with the many reactions.
1: So the urgency comes both from your own impatience and also the urgency of doing something, quotes, useful for the planet.
0: That's for sure. The urgency to do something important is just because it's been done and it continues to be done by people and there's no reason why you can't think you're going to do it. What gets me is that in the history of human progress, literature and science and finding out a way to look at something for the first time, people ask you how the breakthrough occurred or how you were able to do something that looked hard. And what happens is really weird. I mean, to me, I can find over and over again examples where the person who made the discovery who knows bloody well that it was a surprise the moment it happened, but they come up with ways to make it not a surprise. (laughs) They They start telling a story that slips into a just so story. And that is really something. Our tribe can't take this accidental thing. It wants to have the connection. And I'm not a politician or anybody intelligent in that area, but I got to wonder here, you know, the stories that people told around the campfires 200,000 years ago, when man was struggling to uh, really literally survive from animals attacking and getting food. And the person that told the story that lets you lie down and sleep at night And somehow it didn't have any more logical next day prediction than anybody could. Something terrible might happen. But no, the person who can make you feel like it's okay to go to sleep and wake up again, that's the leader. And we see that, I think, in governments where they scare us a lot and they say they're the only ones who can keep us alive in a way. And so that gives them real power. And I'm not saying it's bad. Man really needs to be comforted. But they're like our psychiatrists at large or something. I don't
1: know. Such an interesting point that we do the same thing in science and that we make scientific stories more comforting by giving the rationale or inventing the rationale. Again, it all fits in with your own uncomfortable view of chemistry. (laughs) It shouldn't be comfortable. If it's comfortable, it's wrong. Obviously, you also want to know a great deal. I mean, I was very struck by when you came to that water meeting we ran, You're asking the simple question, why is water blue? Why does it look blue? It's such a good question, which is the sort of question that most people never ask, even though they spend their life observing blue water and admiring it. There are so many questions in life like that, which either don't occur to us, or if they do occur to us, we put them aside and don't bother to think about it more.
0: Yeah, and water is really the be-all and end-all of life.
1: It's the fact that you ask the question. Is it just an insatiable appetite for knowing? Does everything make you N- question it?
0: No, I think it's that I, I drove people crazy when I was young asking questions. Why this? Why that? And uh, my wife points out that I sort of grew up specializing in throwing out answers right away <laughs> when she asked questions. And she, before she knew I was not a genius <laughs> that way, uh, she was just taking it, you know. but. Yeah, and I can't answer questions directly. I don't usually do that. I just sort of get off into a zone of that question and start talking and, and you know, always thinking what really makes this work. And in life systems, everything is connected at some level. So it's so surprising how things are connected. We just won't believe it if we last another 100,000 years and we, have, we keep some sort of system together where we have a history and we record what we've learned. It's going to be amazing. Some of the things that we don't even know are life and death right now that have to do with the way that our bodies work will no doubt surprise everybody, but they'll be accepted and life will go on. I never knew I had an idea that was worth much in anything until at college, my senior year, I think. I took a course in oceanography, which was a course that a man in science and biology offered. And uh, it was fantastic. Uh, We got to do the uh, fruit fly experiment, the cross of hybrids. But I had the idea about how the eel, the American and European eel, get back to the Sargasso Sea and how they come up every year and then float in the North Atlantic Drift, one for one year and one for two years. I had this idea and I wrote this paper and I couldn't find it since then, but I knew that was a new idea. And that was the thing that started me thinking, well, gee, it's really great fun having ideas. But I didn't have an idea that I felt that way about until I was a senior in college. And that's probably good for people to know, I think, because uh, if you're interested in something, you'd be amazed what interest can do.
1: i better finish with a comparison to the only other person to have been awarded two chemistry prizes, Fred Sanger. Now, Fred Sanger famously retired at the end of his research career. Two Nobel Prizes was enough, and he went off and spent his time gardening. Good for him? <laughs> there doesn't seem any danger of you doing that ever.
0: Well, I get to the point where I feel pretty old and tired and dull, and then I think, God, I- I can't do this because, you know, if you really know what it was like to have excitement and want to keep that up. But you're right. I have friends like me. Who, I just can't imagine them retiring. But Sanger, I think, had a life. I mean, during his time as a scientist, he got the really great ways of analyzing things for what? Both of them for genetic purposes, I think. Uh, and that was so timely. And uh, But my way of looking at, is that physics is the really underlying thing and and chemistry emerges from it. And then we got to do something to make that connection real uh, more than we are. (laughs) We have all this discipline. We're doing amazing things. Science is dead. Some people say, well, that's about the dumbest thing I ever heard because we got a bunch of theories. It's not about the theories. It's about what happens because of the theories, right? What kind of things evolve and what you can make and so I, I really feel that this idea that science can stop because we got the book written i i just don't get it <laughs> i mean it's not possible it's no. too rich
1: <laughs> <laughs> barry it's really lovely speaking to you.
0: you really you actually help support conversation between me and the world better than anybody so i'm glad to talk to you whenever i can
1: well let's continue another time but for now this has been just gorgeous thank you
0: okay thanks adam
2: You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Barry Sharpless, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Carlin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you'd like to explore the mind of another brilliant thinker with many irons in the fire, listen to our earlier episode with 2020 Physics Laureate Roger Penrose. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.